Welcome to Cruins Cast Live. Tonight I'm going to be talking with Adam Keane, all the way from Sydney, Australia. Adam has been one of the one of the big contributors to our society um, as IBD, as an IBD community, and has been doing a lot of things over in Australia. And we've got like a little group where we are all connected across the uh, the globe. And yeah, Adam's in, in that group and he's got some really interesting stories. We are live. We've got Adam in the room. And yeah, so uh, Adam, for the people that do not know you, let the people know who you are, where you're from, like how old you are. A little bit about yourself. Sure. All right, welcome. Thanks for having me, mate. I really appreciate it. So, as you know, my name's Adam. I'm uh, 40 years old from Sydney, Australia. Um, father of four boys. Um, yes, it's great to it's great to be live with you guys tonight and be sharing my story and hopefully raising some more awareness and you know encouraging more people to speak up and you know, reduce the stigma and food associated with all things bowel, RBD, sinus. So, yeah, great. Yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm really excited. I, I just what I love about our community is actually how far-reaching we are and how we're able to communicate across continents. So, having a, a chat with someone halfway around the world, I think, is amazing. Four boys, though. Wow, that oh, is three boys. Three boys. Mate. Three boys. Four? Well, my wife <laughs> might say four boys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, guys, if you're tuning in on Instagram, just give us a thumbs up. Let us know the audio is okay. And if you are watching on Facebook, again, just give me a little thumbs up in the comments. And also, while we're going along, if you've got any questions that you would like to ask either of us, just pop them on and we'll try and answer them as best we can. So, Adam, um, with regards to your life, what, how old were you when you were diagnosed? I formally diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in my early 20s, so we've been 21, 22, and I probably really had put up with it probably from my late teens last year at university. I'm very honest with myself, I think. I just really refused to go to the doctor and really speak to anyone about it. And hadn't really done, you know, didn't know what it really was. I just thought I had an upset stomach all the time, constantly running to the bathroom. Um, it wasn't until my now wife Amanda would be dating and was our anniversary and I said to her, you know, what would you like, you know, as a gift? And she said, I'd like you to go to the doctor. That's the present I want. And I remember that day I was at the doctor and I was literally shaking in the, in the room with the doctor when I was going through the symptoms. I don't know why, if I'm honest now, looking back on it, I wish I had actually done it many, many years ago. Um, when I first started having symptoms. Um, and I think some of it, I think, is just because, you know, as men, you know, unfortunately, no one likes to go to the doctor, no one likes to talk about these sorts of things. So, yeah, and I, um, and I really, I remember then going and having a colonoscopy straight up and seeing my GP probably four or five weeks later and literally coming out of the colonoscopy with, you know, Marcella's at the fire ASA. Good old classics. Yeah, that's it, you know, the, the go-tos. Um, and so, yeah, that's really the beginning, I think, 
So you, you touched on um, a little bit of male bravado being the mainstay of why you didn't. And just for people that might be struggling, like what what do you feel is behind that? Like how, like how were you feeling at the time? Because it's a long period of time to be feeling mid-teens to 21, to yeah. be feeling unwell and not sure what to do about it. Like how did you feel through that? And what do you think is it about being a male in particular that stops us from being able to speak about it and go and seek help? It's an interesting one, really, isn't it? I think there's a couple of things I think we've made. I think one, and I don't see that Nick's on watching and I recorded the podcast with her earlier in the week. I think for men, it's that unusual feeling that, you know, if I'm going to go to the GP, I'm going to talk about anything to do with bowels. This is going to lead to, you know, hands down, bend over, prostate exam style. Um, examination, and I think that for that reason, a lot of men, you know, instantly don't want to go to the GP. And then I think some of it really becomes down to well, where you know, where men, it's not really the thing to do. We can get through this and brush it off. You know, I don't, or I don't have time to see as well. Or you know, if you're supposed to be the strong one, I think it's society. Um, thing as well is that you know it puts a lot of um, rightly or wrongly stereotypes on there and pressure I think really to avoid the doctors and I know that a lot of work's been done um, to try and break down some of those barriers but I, I really think that's what it is a combination of all, all of those factors I think for me I just thought that I was really unwell and I just didn't want to know I didn't know, I didn't know what it was so I so I go away, or I don't know what the other, the other or is, or it would be that terrible and I would have to deal with it eventually, which is a really odd thing to do, but as a young guy, um, that was part of the reason that I'm not going to see the doctor and really have that initial conversation. And now when I look back on it, and there's some amazing advances in terms of medication and treatment, you see so many people who do IBD every day and do everything on their stars. Half of the things. Now, I wish I'd been a lot earlier now in hindsight. Yeah, totally. And it's, it is amazing that when you look back, that actually being vulnerable sometimes takes more strength than having that persona of being strong. Um, it's, it's such a it's such a difficult one, I think, for guys across the world, irrespective of what it is, to to have that ability to just say I'm not okay. Um, so it's really interesting, like you know that 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 it took your now wife to push you into being in that position and being strong enough to go and see a doctor and get help. So whenever you went to the doctor, because it's been that long that you were so unwell for. Was it a relief to get your diagnosis? And how did it feel when they said you've got IBD or you've got colitis? Yeah, it, I think it was a relief because I knew, I would say, then I thought it wasn't that serious. Everyone I think knows how serious IBD can be. Um, it was a relief because I think for the periods of when my colitis wasn't flaring, you can be very well. You know, you're not running to the bathroom, you know, upwards of 10 plus times a day not tired, you know, all of the other things that come with having IBD. So 
was a relief, I think. I think it really was that, that, that overwhelming sense of relief and then getting the treatment for it and knowing that these are the different sort of triggers and this is what cause a flare and these are the things that I can do to help manage it. And, I, and effectively, that's what I can do is, is manage it through, you know, navigating the system. And I think the IBD community's come a long way. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go to sort of chronic colitis. Um, this is the chronic colitis society and things like that to seek help and support groups. You know, social media's come a long way. It's very easy to find someone to come along just, you know, searching a hashtag. first diagnosed, it was kind of hitting the sand. I didn't really have anyone to talk to with it, um, about it. And I remember the first person I actually spoke to was one of my mates' dads who had his house with barbecue. And I wasn't drinking at the time because I was in a flare. And I said, he said, oh, do you want a beer? And I said, oh, no, I've got a, got a I can use the term up in stomach. I'm not very, was never very bored with, oh, I've got a So I said, I've got an upset stomach. And he said, Oh, I know what that's like. I've got this condition called colitis. And I was like, Oh, wow, actually, that's what I have. It's the kind of first person I've ever spoken to. That would have been a good 12 months after my diagnosis about colitis. And I think the big piece of advice I can say to people now is to find that community, find that support group, find someone to talk to. Because I think it does make that a world of difference. So for 12 months, how, how did you feel to, um, with the disease? How did you cope with the disease? Um, because it can be, yeah, if there's no one to talk to, you, it must have felt so alone. Yeah, and I think I didn't tell anyone at my work. I really didn't tell anyone my friends, sort of in that first initial period. A lot's changed since then. Now I'm very much open. It's very much you know, talking and trying to raise awareness. And, and I think people probably forget it and just shut up for five minutes and leave it alone. But then, yeah, mm-hmm. I think, and I think it's because of that when I was first diagnosed with ulcerative colitis that I'm now trying to do a lot more of the awareness because it is lonely. And I think you, if you don't find, you know, a safe space to talk about it, I'm not sure what it would do for someone's long term mental health, you know, especially, you know, when you're. So young, um, when I was first diagnosed, I know a lot of people diagnosed you know, in their late teens um, and even earlier or later. I think that initial period of really making sure that you get all that information because whilst the healthcare system is fantastic and doctors and nurses are great, you know, they, unless they've been through it, there's only so much support that they can give as well um, and advice. And so I think really. It's that, it's that, I like you talk about that overwhelming sense of relief 
Yeah, no, that's 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 brilliant. And so, what sort of stuff you mentioned that you're doing more things now in the community, and what what is the community like in Australia? Like, for, so if anybody's watching from Australia, like, where who can they turn to? Who could they talk to? And what sort of things have you been doing or partaking in? Yeah, it's interesting because I only really joined Instagram about two years ago when I was having my um, J have a J talk about why um, later on if you like um, and it was when I was having my stoma surgery that someone suggested oh you know what you should get on to, to Instagram and start searching for people and I found um, a couple of people locally in Australia I don't know, a lot of people might know MJ um, an amazing graphic designer she does a lot um, for the community um, and I found her and I found a couple of others here, like Aussie Ostermate, things like that, um, people like that, that I think are doing a lot. There's a, another handle, Pouch by Pouch. She's created a, a, a sort of a social group here called Ostermingle um, that meets every quarter, which has been really, really good. They originally started with sort of five or six people, and there's more and more people coming along every quarter to, to those sorts of catch ups. The Crohn's and Colitis. Um, Australia, they do local support groups, but I haven't actually been to any of those um, myself. Um, the funny story with, with MJ was that I was in the hospital after my surgery, and one of the nurses um, was a male nurse, and she said, Oh, my um, wife has a stomach. And I said, Oh, okay, that's interesting. And it was interesting to meet someone that sort of knew, and I said, And he said, Oh, you should follow her on Instagram. And it turned out to be MJ's husband. Um, that was was my nurse. So that was really really showed me how much of a small world it is in my thing. With Instagram, I found sort of more people my age with with stomas around this area. So literally, there's another lady that lives two suburbs over, and it's um, quite funny to see someone you follow them on social media. And then you actually see that and you're like, oh, I actually live down the road. So you make sure again to realize how small that can be. But I think it also makes sure that you're not alone because there's a lot more people out there. And I think it's it's raw as well. So it's the good and the bad. So you don't just see people with their curated pages and their you know, staged photos. You see the good and the bad. And I think that's, that's really, really good. I think for a lot of people, it's because.
know, um, like I said, I recorded a podcast last week, which was really, really good. Um, I need to, I would like to try and find the time to do a lot more um, to raise awareness. I have been sort of trying to get a collection of animals to try and get people in the room and sort of advocate more about cancer and IBD, but around not ignoring symptoms or getting checked. I think everyone in their own sort of special way is doing something. I think everyone that you would see made through your crow's house, they join in the listen. I think everyone that they're trying to make a small difference. That's where you should get that way and outreach. Um, you know, and uh, that's really um, what I think basically around what I'm trying to do with both things yeah i think it's, it's it's really important like where where you're concentrating your efforts like and just talking to people that you know like and have a physical relationship is just as important as speaking to a thousand people that you don't have a relationship with um and i think i think sometimes just starting small and and having an effect is more important than starting big and not actually doing anything and I think that's one of the things with Crohn's gas and just generally what I do on social media as well is I try to for me if one person listens to this and gets something from it and takes action that's enough do you know what I mean because it's, it's actually done something rather than having a thousand odd views or whatnot where everyone's just you know liking it I think I was watching Sorry to switch into uh, a, a a sort of current theme of things, but uh, there's a guy that I subscribe to on YouTube called Marcus Brownlee, oh, okay. and he's like a tech YouTuber. So, like, if I'm looking at stuff, I'll look at tech YouTubers to get their views. But anyway, so he, he did a, uh, a, a current piece on sort of Black Lives Matter type stuff, and one of the things he was talking about was content and the, the a current um, surge or request socially for people to follow more black um, channels or black creators. And his, he was sort of like, if you're going to do that, that's great, but make sure you actually like what the guy's doing because just by subscribing to that channel, for instance, the guy will get loads of subscribers, but actually he's like, if you don't watch this channel and you don't, you're not interested in his content, don't comment, don't like the videos, you're going to negatively affect his ability on the, uh, so I was like, and that's kind of like what, what I think, um, is that me that's making that noise? Or is that? Possibly. Yeah. I don't know what it was. Um, but yeah, the, uh, it's just interesting that if you've not, if you're not hitting the right people, if you're not hitting people that are interested and want to see and want to listen and take something away from it, you're not, you're not helping anybody. Yeah. Essentially. It's quite, it's quite important. Sorry. Really, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Sorry I to diversify. No, no, of course. <laughs> well, I think, I think that I think when people are in sort of the social media sphere, you know, sadly, Everything's based on likes and number of followers, right? And so I think you're right. Like, if you're if you're following someone and you're not getting anything out of their content, you know, 
you potentially are mm. doing them a disservice, really. Um, but then I think, you know, most people, some people like to be voyeurs. And I, don't, I don't mean that in a, in a sexual fashion. I mean that some people like to just, you know, like you say, they might not watch the content, but they might see the photos. And if they even they get one or two things out of that, then I think they're making it positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Totally, because I, I remember, um, I don't know whether it's sad or not to admit this, but I remember when I first came on Instagram, like, I, not first came on Instagram, I first wanted to do stuff productively on Instagram, yeah. uh, where I felt where I felt like I wanted to get my message out and, and reach, so to speak. Um, and there's all these Facebook groups where it's like Instagram, boosted pages or whatever it is oh, and you go on yes. you go you go onto it and it's like everyone posts their posts from instagram and then you got to like everyone's post and everyone will like your post oh. i think i i think i did that like three times and i was like oh wow i've got like over 100 likes and comments uh-huh. on this post but none of them like none of them had ibd none of them yeah. were like leaving yeah. comments that so it's like well because the algorithm will look at that and it'll go, right, okay, so what are these people interested in? So this person's interests, they've liked this post. So what are they interested in? So then it's going to put it, so it might, put, it might land in front of someone who's got IBD or needs help with, with something like that. Um, but the chances are that it's just going to end up in more people that aren't, aren't, aren't going to be affected by it and therefore not interested. But yeah, yeah. let's get, I'll get back on topic now. <laughs> so, so for you, how like how did life change? Uh, so you've spent a, spent twelve months thinking about things, and finally sort of found someone you could talk to about it. How did life change when you found those people to talk to about it? I think it's again, it's a, I keep coming back to this loneliness and relief, and but I think it's getting knowing that this is normal for some people as well. Like people live. I think like this and can have it because it was my friend's dad. He said he had it since his late teens as well. And he was well and truly in his 60s. And so to have seen someone, you know, live sort of 50 years or 40 years. What's happening? Oh, there we go. Oh, uh, don't worry. You come back. <laughs> um, I think that for me, that gave me a lot of encouragement as well that, um, you know, life. You know, it doesn't have to impact your daily life. Like, yes, it, you know, as you would, would know, you know, you have your ups and downs with Crohn's and colitis. You have you know, good days, good weeks, good months, and you also have some very bad, deep, dark days and moments where you know it's a struggle. So I think having found someone to talk to about it kind of made me aware that you know, almost I hate saying this, you know, we're all in it together, but you know that. You don't have to, you know, struggle through on your own. And I think it also was good to just hear, you know, what, for example, practical tips like what medication they were taking, you know, certain things here, you can just have an idea that makes you feel better, you know, how he approached, you know, little things like finding bathrooms and all of those sorts of practical things you could really sort of say to people or ask, um, those sorts of things. I found a relief, that makes sense. And the toilet humour. Yeah, and the toilet humour, of course. So I think my friends were sick and tired of me, like they'd sit and I was making excuses as well, I was up to the bathroom all the time. Um, and so it, it was good to just 
you know, like you said, the have that human connection and really understand that other people are, you know, going through the same thing. Um, not that uh, someone says, oh, misery loves, you just do the misery loves company, but it's not about, um, you know, a problem. it's more like a problem shares a problem part. I don't know if I got that right. Um, so, yeah, that was good. And I think through that, I was then more open to talking about it with my colleagues at work. And then through a guy who used to sit next to his best mate had Crohn's as well. So it was, I think it's just opening up more and getting the courage, I think, um, is really what speaking to, to Scotty's dad did for me more than anything else. I think that's one of the amazing points you touched on is actually once you do start talking about it, you realize how common it actually is as, as a disease in itself. And it's like, yeah. it, I think, I think it is true. Like a problem shared is a problem half because instantly you just stop feeling like you're alone. And it's so much, it's so powerful. Um, to all of a sudden be amongst all of these people that are going through similar stuff. I'm like, I remember I was quite, secretive about mine my um ulcerative colitis or at least it was also at that point um uh, for years and then um i had a really bad flare where i ended up having to have surgery and have an ostomy and at that point i like i was thir- i just turned 30 literally my 30th birthday um and at that point then it was like there's no hiding this i've literally got an appendage yeah like hanging off of my yeah. off of my stomach so I then started like started talking about it and where I was in my career, I was based at Heddy Court, which is like a, a rehabilitation hospital for the military. It's, okay. it's moved locations now. But um, because I was there, I was almost thrust into a position where I had no choice but to talk about it. And yeah. all of the staff that were colleagues were then interacting with people that were have had I or having IBD issues or having ostomy issues. Uh, so then it was like, oh, I know, I know a member of staff, me, to, yeah. who's going through this. So then instantly, then I was then put into getting put in contact with these people to sit down and talk about it. And, uh, okay. uh, and so all of a sudden, then I was like, wow, the, the, how many people in this very small section of society are having all of these issues? And it was yeah. like, you know. Within a course of a matter of months, there was at least ten to fifteen different people that I'd spoken to about either ostomies or IBD, oh, and I was like, and that was just from me just saying, "Hey, look at me! I've got an ostomy and swinging about." <laughs> but I was it's, like, it's "Wow!" Interesting you say that, isn't it? Because I think, especially with ostomies, I don't think people realise they're a lot more common than you would think, and I think it's you know. Once you say, oh, I've got one, someone says, oh, yeah, I know someone that has one or my father has one or, you know, the neighbour down the street or whatever. It's really interesting. I was sort of talking to a guy um, in the kitchen at work earlier in the week and he was saying that his friend um, is new, new, newly ostomate. <laughs> new to having a stoma is an ostomate now. And he was asking me all these questions that I kind of said to him at the end, actually, I said, you should really sit down with your friend and ask him as well because I'm sure, you know, all of these questions that you've got that he was asking me because he was curious about what his friend was going through. So you could actually just sit and ask your friend. I'm sure he wants to talk to someone about it um, and it probably will make him feel better that you were interested because they weren't, well, it's not a, 
not all questions are silly and there's no silly questions when it comes to it, but there are questions that his friend wouldn't have been embarrassed answering. And so he was like, oh, do you really think I could ask him? I was like, well, just like you're asking me now, you could ask me, mate, I wonder whether or not it's because we just called him to talk. Yeah. I've got nothing to lose. We might have been a little bit more embarrassed because he has that personal connection with an actual friend versus just a colleague in the kitchen. Yes, totally. Um, so when did it become apparent that you would need an ostomy? And uh, like was was it a long drawn out process or was it was it a shock? How did it make you feel? Because I never ever considered an ostomy, and I ended up having my ostomy for bowel cancer. But the whole time I had colitis in the lead up to it, everything was headed to that way anyway. So I was on the, the Masalas and the 5SA, no joy, did prednisolone for about a year, no joy, and then did Imuran for about five years and worked really, really well doing the, the quite a high dose of Imuran. And then just all of a sudden that stopped working. And so it went on to the epilepsy that uh, infusions every six weeks. And it was during a, a flare that I had that I originally probably started in about April that we thought was a flare. Um, and then it probably took about six months to be diagnosed as, as bowel cancer, I think. Um, when you're faced with, with that, with the surgery, this was... Um, in 2010, I did everything in my power to find a surgeon that would give me a resection and not leave me with a, with a stoma. And, you know, living life after that, you know, I kind, kind of walked to myself, I dodged a bullet. And in hindsight, knowing now, sort of fast forwarding to, to 2018 when I returned, and I had no choice but to have a stoma, it was either there's another option. Um, my life probably would have been easier with a stoma back in 2010 versus dealing with, you know, all of the issues of, of ulcerative colitis, but because we've got such a short piece of bowel there that you're still running to the bathroom and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think because mine, I had my stoma sort of in such a rush, I didn't really have time. Not that it was an emergency surgery, but it was from the sort of date of diagnosis to the, the actual operation would have been five to seven days. There was no real time in my mind to think about it. I think I was really, un, I was very unsure. I was very worried. I think all of the the questions around would it leak? How am I going to do this? What will people think? No one sort of sits you down and tells you that until after the surgery when you finally meet a stoma nurse and then they go through all the practicalities of these things. You know, I didn't know that you couldn't, you could sort of have a shower with it on, with the bag on. I always thought my stoma nurse was a lovely lady, but she always told me to take the bag off and change my bag every day and put a fresh one on when I got out of the shower. So I was always showering with the bag off. And it wasn't for many months after that I discovered that you, it's uncommon, it's not um, common to change your bag every day to wear it for two or three days or longer if you needed to. And your shower would be on and it dries. And so that's funny because I think 
all of those practical things, you know, come after the after the fact. And I think a lot of them come from speaking to other people and other hostels and talking about what they do and what products they use or ringing some of the drug companies to find out. You know, send me samples, I'll try this, I'll try that. We're quite lucky, probably a little bit like you know, you guys are in the UK. We have a stoma scheme in Australia, so it's hundred percent funded um, through Medicare and the Department of Health. So yeah, that's that is amazing as well. So we're we're very, very lucky with that. But back to your question, um, Johnny, really I think how did I feel? I think I felt scared and I've been ang- and angry as well and in that that time because I just I didn't want to have a stoma and I think all of those negative connotations and all of those myths that people have um, about life with the stoma this would be the end of, of life as I know it I would be able to be as active as I used to be um, all, all of those sorts of, I think probably normal um, thoughts went through my head yeah, and it, it's, you know, completely, completely understand the, the scary sort of prospect of it. I remember, um, I, I think I only had about two days of a discussion about it. And I was really paranoid. Um, cause at the time, at the time I was, um, single, um, you know, there was no one on the scene or anything even at the time. And I was like, how, how, Am I going to meet someone? It's quite a shallow thing to think about, but it's also, I think yeah, it's quite, quite yeah. Um, and I was just like, uh, I've not met anybody now while I've been healthy. How am I going to meet someone now with like all this baggage, baggage. so to speak? <laughs> and, uh, and I was just like, this is, this is blowing my mind. Like, oh, and like literally, like you're saying, it was, it was almost like a why me scenario. Yeah, um, definitely. I was quite fortunate that there was another person, like everyone in the ward seemed to be 60 plus. Um, and then there's this one person came in and actually got quite a similar story to yourself. He um, had to have an ostomy, um, but through having the surgery, because um, initially they were just going to do a resection of his bowel, but then when they okay. went in, they realized that his bowel had cancer as well. Um, so then he, he then had to have to go through that process. So when he woke up, it was like, oh, we weren't able to do a resection. We needed to give, take the whole bowel out. Uh, but anyway, long story short, he was closer to my age. Um, and he had met his wife after having the surgery and had had kids and all sorts. And he's like, look, it's, if the person, if it's the person you're meant to be with, then you'll be with them. Um, and if they can't accept you with it, then they're not worth being around. And it's like, it was just, and I was just chatting and hearing it from someone of a similar age, like you said earlier. Um, it just makes it so much more different because whenever it's not from, for in my case, when it's not from a bloke, because all the stoma nurses were, were females. Yes. Um, and when it's not from someone who's at your age in life, it's almost like their opinion, although valid, isn't necessarily relevant. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting and, and it's, it's really awkward. But the, the main thing for me, and I don't know how you felt because obviously yours was due to cancer, but as soon as I woke up, I felt so much better because my large bowel was so diseased at the time. Oh, okay. Um, it was taking so much out. Like I was, I was bed bound essentially and I was, was shitting myself in a hospital bed, which yeah. was embarrassing because the nurse no. that was tending to me was extremely attractive and 
I've seen it, obviously seen it all before, but as a, as a, as a young man in a position like that to soiling yourself and being like, Mm. Oh, but again, yeah, obviously obviously the nurse was exceptionally professional. I was like, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. And you know, you had to see her throughout the rest of her shift, go into other people, but these people, these people, these people were in their sixties and they're doing, whereas I'm a, I'm a young, supposedly fighting fit soldier who's got, control of the scruples yeah. physically active bloke who's now soiling himself in front of an attractive yeah. lady brilliant but yeah <laughs> it's it's a re- really was like a, the turn the change of events from having the surgery immediately afterwards to feeling like a whole new person was yeah, wow. it just removed all of the fears for me instantly it was like i'm alive I actually feel alive and more alive than I've yeah, ever wow. felt uh, in the last, at least the last few months anyway. Uh, but I don't know, how yeah. was it for you waking up and, and looking down and going, that this, this could be for life? Yeah, and, and it's a really hard moment, I think, because you, I, I remember sort of, I was sort of had the blankets on and I had to ask the nurse to take the blankets off. So I, all I wanted to do was, was to sort of touch it and see... Um, and then I, I, I think probably took me a couple of days to get my head around. It probably wasn't a help. I had this one nurse who was actually a male nurse um, when I was waking up in ICU. So I was in there for the first sort of 24 hours, and he needed to to, to, to drain the bag or empty my bag, and it was would have been just all the blood and, and sort of stomach juices and anything else. But he was quite embarrassed to do it. And so that really put me off. I was like, oh, if, if you're a nurse and you can probably see this, you know, a number of times a week and if you don't want to do this, then how am I ever going to cope with it? And that, that kind of went through my mind. I thought, oh, this is going to be a lot harder to manage on a daily basis than I had mentally prepared myself for. Um, luckily, I now know that not to be true, but it, that was my, it was more fear, I think, Johnny, than anything else around you know, what am I going to do? How is this, you know, what lays ahead of me now? What, you know, what life going to be like with the stoma? Um, but no, I don't like you would know, no one prepares you for it. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a definitely a journey that you go on. Um, and I think everyone has their own little rhythm and their own little routine and, and you know, how comfortable are you with you know, the clothing that you wear or, you know, I wear a soma belt all the time. Um, I don't like the sort of being visible through a T-shirt, you know, if I'm out and about running errands. It feels more comfortable now. It's just part of my daily routines to to wear that soma belt from the moment I wake up to when I go to bed at night home. I'm sitting on a couch, I'll take it off if I'm out and about. Um, That's what I do. So, yeah, it's interesting, I think. Again, primarily it was fear. You wake up and you think, oh gosh, what am I, I going to do? There's no going back from this now. So. No, definitely. And, you know, I think everyone who's gone through that process will agree that, it, you know, whether, whether you're a positive about it or not, there is definitely a fear there. And, and it's like, yeah. I'm... I'm <laughs> I went through, I went immediately through the process for a J pouch and um both all all of my surgeries I think 
bar the last one, it's a bit hazy now because it is it is nearly ten years ago. But um, pretty much all my surgeries, I had a stall or a uh, what would you call it? I think stall. Stall's right enough. And it, not, it wasn't a blockage. It was just like the, the bowel would go to sleep and not function. Yeah. Um, and th- at that point, particularly on the first time, the first the first time I didn't get, I didn't have an NG tube. I refused an NG tube. Um, I don't know why, but I just refused it and just yeah. chose to suffer. Um, but uh, that was the, those were the scariest points because at that point, the, the damage is done, you know, like, yeah. and I'm like going, oh my God, this is meant to save me and I am now in, like, whoa. And that was, that was really scary because I was just looking at it going, well, there's nothing I can do now. It's, it's there yeah. and it's not working. And that, yeah. that I think... Um, Ant has discussed that very well on his page currently um, about going through and and for him, the surgery was such a big relief and and just making that decision to go through with it. And then um, like I chatted to him before and and talked about my journey, but even even that, it's not going to prepare you for your own individual experience. Mm -hmm. I don't think it'll get a forewarn you or, or forearm you. But yeah, I think it, it. You can only do it yourself, and yeah, he, he's demonstrated that very well on his page. I feel the the emotional roller coaster of having surgery that is supposed to save your life and then having complications with it. Yeah. But for for you, like, so obviously you had cancer at the time, uh, and it was decided that you needed to have an ostomy in order to remove I'm, I'm assuming the section of the bowel or was it the whole bowel that was removed uh so the first time i had all but about sort of six to ten centimeters of my my bowel removed and then the surgery that's when it came back the second time it was in my rectum so it was in my rectum and also um in my bowel or what was left in my bowel so when i had a colonoscopy they found the polyp they found that led to me having the surgery wasn't the, the only tumor that was there, they actually found a new tumor in my rectum, um, which is why I ended up having a stoma. But also, you know, you mentioned the J pouch. I have a J pouch in situ. I've had it connected and then had to, to go back to the stoma. Um, turned out how I had a like a pin sized hole in the pouch. And so once it was connected, waste was making its way through that that hole and, and basically ended up having pelvic sepsis but it was a, I had a horrendous time with my J patch when I had it connected. I was going to the bathroom up to thirty times a day. So it would be at least once an hour. And I was doing all of the pelvic floor muscle um, exercises the whole time, leading up to having it connected and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it was by the evening that the, they say the bath burn was just immense. I was getting into the bath, sitting in the bath with Epsom salts and stuff to try and calm it down. I was putting local anaesthetic um, around my rectum because the pain was just phenomenal. And I've got three young boys, and you know what it's like when you've got kids in nappies with nappy rash. It gave me a new um, appreciation for how bad it must be for little kids that can't sort of articulate you know, the pain associated with nappy rash. And I was waking up every night 
every hour. So my wife wasn't sleeping. I ended up having to sleep in another room because, you know, getting up and going, it's not a matter of going to the toilet for two or three minutes, just sitting there trying to empty the pouch and go back to bed and finally get to sleep and then wake up again. And so I, after four months, as a result of the sepsis, went back to the stoma and still have the pouch in place. And my surgeon was asking, will I ever get it connected again? Maybe in 12 to 24 months' time, but I'm in no great rush just because of the freedom, I think, that the, the ostomy gives me. Um, and I know that I'm not having to run to the toilet. And I don't know, I think but I'm scared if I have the J-Pouch reconnected of retraining myself. And I like to think that the reason I was going so often is because of the, the infection. But I'm like, what if it's not? What if the, the infection and the sepsis was um, unrelated to the amount of time that I was going to the bathroom? I don't know if I could get myself through that again. And I don't know if I could find a surgeon that would then, you know, reconnect or disconnect the pouch and you know, recreate a stone for me. But that's my biggest fear as well, is that, you know, at the moment I know what I've got. And I, you know, it's very manageable. You know, it doesn't impact my day-to-day life. If I go back to the J pouch, you know, back in square one, and it's very unpredictable. And I don't know whether I could adjust my diet again for the first six, six to twelve months as you start to train yourself in terms of what food can and can't eat while the, the body reacclimates to it. You know, I don't know whether I could go back to running and trying to find a bathroom or knowing when I leave the house, you know, where the bathrooms are or planning road trips so I know, you know how long it is to the next service station or if I'm in a department store, you know, what floor is the, the mother's room with the disabled toilets on, all of that sort of stuff that I've now left behind um, that you used to know, I used to know, especially when I was in a flare with my colitis. Like I could tell you almost where every public toilet was in my day-to-day commute to work and, you know, this is the pub that I was going to, you know, this is where the toilet was and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's actually really interesting because that's I hadn't thought about it for for a while myself. Um, yeah. But one of the things that freaked me out, so it's flipping it into a current situation with, with coronavirus and yeah. things opening back up. Um, I found myself in Cardiff yesterday and going, I don't know if the toilets are public toilets are open because obviously that's a big uh, infection risk. Yeah. And it was like I was like, I need a toilet. And um one of the one of the people I follow, Kaleidos Ninja, um, a girl called Amber, who does like loads of um art themed around yes. the cartoon basically of the of the disease. Um she does uh, some cards like uh, like health cards. Oh, so like for a flashcard. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she sent me that and I was like going well, I'm gonna have to. I might have to employ this and see if I can use a staff <laughs> toilet or something like that. Yeah. But but luckily, like I, I went round and it, but it was it was stressful. It was. Do you know okay. what I mean? Like I'm like. Yeah, of course. I'm not gonna say I wasn't like curled up in a ball sweating, but yeah. I was like walking around and I was like I was really genuinely going, if these toilets aren't open, what am I gonna do? Can can I hold this till I go home? Which is a which is a which is a thirty forty minute drive. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, it was. It was like I hadn't felt like that in so long, where I was like yeah. really worried about not being able to go to the toilet. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it was. 
and then for you having gone through that process and not having been in it for a while and the fear of possibly going back to yeah okay, i completely get that um in your experience then what has i'm not sure what i've got a lot of feedback coming onto the facebook side of things like a like a hum i'm not sure what's happening in there have you did you change some? Have you put? Uh, I think you might have Black knocked dark, your cable. Maybe. Is that better? Yeah, we are. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's okay. better. Are you low on battery? I am a little bit low on battery, um, but it's all good. Maybe that's the fastest. Okay. The, we'll be. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> we might we might cut out on Instagram shortly, but for those that are watching, <laughs> um, <laughs> we will we will pop straight back up. So it'll, it'll pop up on live again. Okay. Um, so for for the guys, like what a lot of experiences have happened in the, in that time period, and obviously up up until now. So I think what what is for you when you had to get your ostomy? Um, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Can you say the question again, Johnny? I was yes. Yeah. So um, a lot of stuff happened in a short period of time. You know, you you got diagnosed at twenty one. Um, what age were you when you ended up having your ostomy? Oh, I was 38. So, okay, so like, yeah. that's a, it's still a short period of time. So like, getting that ostomy at, at 38 and having all the experiences um, with your colitis and thousands of different bits of medication, times and flare, times not flare, what has it all taught you about yourself? I think I'm more resilient than I thought I would be, especially in the last two years with getting the ostomy. I I actually thought, you know, initially, you know, I didn't think I could, I would be mentally strong enough to overcome that plus a reoccurrence um, of the cancer. And I think for me, you know, it's really, I've learned some very good coping mechanisms, I think, from a mental health perspective for me. And it's also really shown me the tremendous support I have of my family and friends. And I think it, it really, sadly, in, in some respects, teaches you who your friends are as well. Um, and I think it, it's taught me, I think, to be more open as well and really want to try and, you know, make life easier for other people in similar situations. Um, you know, know that it's not as bad as, as you know, the, the myth is or the, the perception is that, you know, what life would be like with a with an ostomy. No, totally. And it's, it's such a amazing thing, actually, how frequently people comment on their personal resilience and the personal strength that they, they didn't know that they had. Yes. And I think that's, for me, that's something pertinent for people that are early in their journey. Um, but on, the, on that thought, what, what sort of advice would you want to give someone who was still either just getting diagnosed, going through symptoms of or facing surgery? What would your advice to them be? So I think to answer the first part, you know, people that are having symptoms go to the doctor. If you um, are not sure what's wrong with you and you're unwell, 
you know, absolutely go to your GP. I, I am now a massive advocate for the, the first 30 seconds uh, to a minute and a half. The conversation will be awkward and you'll feel an absolute sort of sigh of relief and the overwhelming relief. And you can move forward because got 10, 10 seconds left on Instagram. Okay. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, people that have got, you know, having a stoma and... and, and yeah, it's okay. Um, we'll come back up on Instagram shortly. Are still there? So yeah, yeah. I think in terms of people that have got a an ostomy, is my advice to them really is to to seek out that support network, whether it is through finding you know comfort in a community, whether it be a support based network um, like a, a support group, whether it be through finding people on social media that you can interact with, um, whether it's um, finding finding that safe place to really interact with other ostomates and drawing on their strength and drawing on their experiences um, to help you with, you know, the challenges that you face every day or when you're, you know, feeling down and you just want someone that understands you um, and knows what you're going through. Yeah. I mean, and that's, yeah, again, it's really, I think it's really important. Um, like just to, just having the courage to go and see a doctor. Yeah. And I think, I think realizing just from your own story that actually, you know, the likelihood is you are stronger than you think your body can do so much and your mind can do so much more. Um, oh, I agree. So who was, what, what sort of inspired you? What, what was the things that pulled you through? Obviously you've got your own personal resilience, um, but what sort of things did you turn to? What tools did you maybe use to help yeah, you? It's interesting. I, uh, I actually, from a, from a mental health perspective, try hypnosis. And I, I always find, I find this story quite funny because I was always a skeptic. I didn't want to go and see a psychologist or, or someone like a counsellor. So a friend suggested that I go and see you know, a, a hypnotherapist. And you know, I thought, oh, I, I went along because I thought I'm going to give anything a go. And I remember sitting there and, you know, the, the first thing she said was, you know, we talked about, you know, some of the, the positive affirmations that I wanted to plant into my, you know, into my mind and, and, you know, positive outlook. And I remember her saying, you know, don't blink. So keep your eyes open, keep your eyes open, keep your eyes open. If you feel like you need to blink, close your eyes. So I did that and I was trying not to sort of, you know, chuckle and laugh blatantly in this lady's face when we were doing it. And then she sort of started talking to me about, you know, um, positivity and things like that. And she was like, oh, when, when you wake up, you'll feel this. And I was literally holding back, laughing. And then what I thought would have been five minutes and when she finally said, I thought, oh, what a load of absolute rubbish this was. I can't believe I'm going to have to pay for this. Um, what I thought was five minutes was about 35 minutes. Um, huh. And so I was like, oh, wow, okay. And, and I, 
that made me actually feel like my outlook was changed. I felt happier in myself for three or four days after each session. And I, I'm, I'm now a big fan of hypnotherapy. I haven't done it for a very long time, if I'm honest. But I, I would recommend to anyone that's a skeptic to give it a go because I really got a lot out of it. Um, and, and I'm now a big convert after, after my first experience. The, the other thing that I sort of find is, and my sister put me onto this, was, again, I, I believe the mind is a very powerful thing. I think if, you, if you're a positive, if you're positive, what you put out to the universe, you'll get back. Um, she made me do positive affirmations every morning. It was, I'm my best me, me, I'm happy, healthy, and cancer-free. And she was like, you need to say that either out loud to yourself or, or you know, in your head three times in the morning to try and help recenter your outlook. Um, again, a big skeptic in myself. And, but after doing that for the first couple of days, it just became part of my morning routine. Whether it worked or not, I don't know, but it made me feel eventually, you know, I am going to be positive. I am healthy. I'm happy. I've got so much to be thankful for. So it's that, it's that power of positivity. Um, but I know I'm not, I know that that's not always possible either. Like there will be dark, there are dark days and there are days, you know, where you just, uh, I just think I've had enough of this or why me and I get so angry. Um, sometimes it, 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 sometimes I think for me, you've just got to allow yourself to be angry. I think you've got to allow yourself to be sad and have those and recognize that you're having that, that bad day. Um, and I, and I think it's recognizing it before you spiral too much more as well. I don't know what you find, um, Johnny, but for me, yeah, it really is. I think just recognizing in yourself that not every day is going to be perfect and that, you know, you are allowed to be upset or you can be angry at times or you can be frustrated and to just experience that, but then try and move forward and like, like I say, find the positive and try and keep pushing forward and, you know, you know, be grateful for everything else that you have. I know that sounds really corny, but, you know, I, I do believe in the power of positive thinking. And, yeah, yeah, and, and why wouldn't you? Do you know what I mean? Um, I think I'm still, I'm still quite early on the sort of uh, men- mental awareness sort of game. Um, it's, not, it's not a game, but... You, <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, like um, I'm still learning and reading so much from the sort of mental aspect of life now. Like through sport, early earlier in my life, like there was always like sports psychology, you know, and self talk, positive self talk, be it on a golf course, be it athletics track, uh, and it's been well documented that it's actually the mental presence of the athlete at the time will be almost a bigger um, impact on performance than the preparation. Yes. Um, because it can just, it's just like, it's particularly in something like, like golf, um, there's, there is significant evidence to show that there, your mental strength around a golf course is what will determine more than your level of skill as to how much of a good impact or a good round that you would have in, in a competition. Um, so it's like when you look at, um, it's all, it's almost all the things like, so if you look at Augusta, um, and the masters, for example, and you know, 
they go around the corner and those four holes, your ability to recover after that, if you have a bad and your, your actual ability to score well, if you'd score badly in the first one is so significantly impacted. And that's, that's, there's no other reason other than your own mental state following that. And obviously that's impacted by actual history of people not performing well over those holes or the history of previous events where those four holes have decided to tournament and all, all of that. So it's, it's the external impacts, but they're externally impacting your mind, not your ability to swing a golf club, not your ability to discern whether that shot's the right shot. And yeah, so like from that perspective, I think I've well adjusted to understanding the power of the mind and uh, how it impacts yeah. a lot of things. But it's funny how I haven't ever really drawn a comparison with that to everyday life. Yeah. And it's only recently that I've started to look at that from a from a health perspective, from a recovery perspective, and just yeah. generally day to day. And it's just, yeah, it, it's it's quite popular right now. You could say it's a it's it's pop culture a little bit. Yeah. But true. At the same time, there's so much there's so much truth in it. There's so much significant research that is mm. positive for it as well. Um, yeah, it's just it's one of those things I think it can really, really work. And like you're saying, that positive mindset, I'm trying to put that positivity out there. Yeah, it can only be a good thing. So if even if you don't believe wholeheartedly in it, an element of it is going to, to surely come through if you, if you did it religiously. Yeah, agree. I completely agree. It's kind of like that PT mantra of a poor plan well executed will well, well, show results versus a well-planned plan, poorly executed. Yeah, yeah completely, completely right. Um, so, thinking about your life now, so we've gone, we've gone through a journey. Like, you know, you've, you've diagnosed with your IBD. Unfortunately, like we are at greater risk um, for things like bowel cancer. Um, suffering from that uh, resulted in an ostomy. What? What things have you learned now? That, like, what things can you do now that you couldn't do before? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, that's a good one. Um, I think it's more about lifestyle. So, you know, like I said, having ulcerative colitis in my late teens, early twenties, and, and always, you know, struggling to have it under control. I never really went to things like, you know, big concerts and and gigs because I was afraid of not being able to get to the toilet at time. And um, and so then at the same thing, didn't go to the football and other sporting events where there was, you know, everyone would be at halftime and would be running to the to the toilet and only be like three or four cubicles and knowing that I might not be able to get there on time. So in terms of what can I do now that I couldn't do before, I think it's that. I think it's a lifestyle thing. It's those sorts of things that I get. It's that freedom that I've got to to do all those sorts of things that I couldn't do before um, from a social and outing perspective I think more than that, more than anything else that's I think that's where I've got my real benefit from um, and and that I think fundamentally changes um, you know 
especially with young boys, um, before, you know, I couldn't imagine, you know, being wet without with the three of them and needing to run to a public bathroom and what, what do you do, you know, often the disabled toilets, as you know, are full or it's hard to go to the, to the parents' room, you know, and leave them all outside while you're in the, in the, in the cubicle on your own. Um, so that, I think, for me, right, has been the biggest benefit of just being able to do all those sorts of things and not have that huge worry or burden um, of, you know, well, am I going to make it? Am I going to find it? You know, you can see the rushing. Just not experiencing that anymore, I think, has been great for me. Yeah, and I, I would say that's probably the biggest bonus, I should imagine. Like, just, you know, there's people out doing kind of different things, but the things that we take for granted yeah. amazingly are always the things that when you can't actually do them are the things that impact you the most. That's you know, it's like just the simple things like walking down the street, being able to go and experience a sunrise or a sunset and not be like, oh, I'm too remote. You know what I mean? Like, um, so yeah, I think that's, that's really really important thing to realize and maybe look at our own lives now and look at the things that maybe we do take for granted and realize how special they actually are. Yeah, I agree. Um, I've reached a point in our chat now where um, essentially I ripped it off of Lewis Howes, who's like a a business (laughs) podcaster and he calls it the three truths. So it's, it's your last day on earth many years from now. And everything you've ever done, everything you've ever spoken to or written down or anything is somehow lost to the world. And what, what three truths, sort of like life lessons, would you want to leave for the world to learn? Whoa. Um, <laughs> putting me on the spot, I think. Well, that's very profound and deep. So for me, I think the first one is is to forgive. I, I hold a grudge, so I think, you know, I think my the first lesson would be to forgive quickly um, and and give people a second chance and, and move forward. I think having been so unwell for so long, I think like I said earlier, that you really know who your true friends are and that there's been people that I've lost because they weren't there for me. Um, and so I think, you know, my first truth would be, you know, to forgive them. Two, I think, um, is to really embrace life for everything it has to offer. I think I'm a very cautious person generally, um, like to make very balanced decisions. And I think sometimes you can miss living in that moment, um, because you're always worrying about what ifs and what, what's what lies next and, you know, is this going to be the right choice for me? I think it's so good. My second lesson would be to just embrace life and to say yes. I think to say yes more or to say yes to everything. Um, and three, but my final truth, I think, is to is, is always got to be around family. I think it's got to be to, to, to love um, and to nourish and that being a father now and through again boys, you know, what the, the, the actions I do is, is, is leaving them a legacy. So, you know, how how being just aware of, you know, 
what my actions do to really mould what sort of young men they will be um, in the world. And so I think it's it's really to to, to love um, and leave that lasting impression of being that uh, again with positive influence, but being that positive impact you want to see in the world, and, and paying that forward um, through everyday actions. Very very deep question there, mate. Um, in terms of three. Well, I mean, I think you've answered that amazingly uh, well, considering it was such a deep question. Don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, so, so forgive quickly, embrace life, and love and nourish family and use that to educate and set example. It reminds me actually uh, a lot about a, a Will Smith thing that my wife maybe watched uh, with his wife on a, in the red room, I think it is, or the red couch. And uh, one of the things he talks about, particularly in your last point, is that education isn't just for schools and that everything is edu everything every opportunity is a teaching moment yeah. um and that, that's so true and like at every point um he talks about his dad wanting he was he wasn't a teacher he couldn't teach but he, he would teach by example and he uh, wanted his children so he rather than setting things up where it was teaching them he wanted them to watch him do and so uh, he would okay he would do it through example and then get them to do it. So they would see the best, him in his best light at all times. Um, which, which I thought in itself was a really interesting. I, I feel that's similar to, to what you're talking about. Definitely. Because it's so true. Like, you know, everything that we do, whether we, whether we expect it to or not, our children and people absorb it and take, take something from that. Um, so yeah, everything, everything we do is a teaching moment. Um, I'd just like to take a minute before we sort of hang up the call and just acknowledge your, yourself, Adam, to, to thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing and showing that vulnerability um, that was so difficult earlier in our lives to share. Um, you know, I, I, I truly think that being able to be vulnerable, particularly on, on, in a forum such as this, where it's live, you know, it's, it's recorded for, for all time. It's actually so strong. Um, and it's able to, I think, doing what you're doing is enabling others to, to show their own light by, by being unafraid to share yours. It allows and gives permission to others to, to unleash and show their own, which... I think it's so powerful. And even if it's just talking to somebody that you know, which I think it's even more than talking to someone that you don't know, um, is such an amazing, amazing thing to do. And I just, I just want to thank you for that. And thank you for being part of our community and, and doing whatever it is that you can do to help. I think that's, that's, that's more than anyone can expect of anybody. And I think it's so wonderful that, you know, you are there and you're willing and to be of service. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, no, thank you, Johnny. You know, you're very welcome. I think I want to thank you for, for asking me, for reaching out and asking me to, to, to appear on your, your latest Chromecast. I think the work that you do um, has a very, very uh, big impact on people, probably more than you, you are aware, I think, you know, uh, having this forum and allowing people to come together and share their stories, I think, you know, like this, it, it does a lot more for, for awareness and education than, than you might be aware. 
takes a lot of your time and effort, um, especially with the young family and you know everyone working and, and with your own health. So I think you know, you're, a, you're a great, a great advocate, um, and, a, and it's fun to hear that here in the UK, I'm here in, in Australia, that you can have this global community of people that come together and, and really support each other. So um, and say, mate, thank you, um, mate, for everything you do. Oh, thank you very much. Very touched. Um, okay, guys. Um, thank you so much for those that have dropped in and joined us for the show and uh, for the, the few comments that we were getting. Um, that is concluding the end of Crohn's Gas. So if you are watching this on YouTube there or Facebook, don't forget to like the video. Share it around. So if you know anybody who potentially would benefit from seeing the video and take something away from it, please, please, please share. It doesn't need to stay on any of our pages. And thank you so much again, guys, for tuning in. That has been Crohn's Cast Live. I've been Johnny Gray, and this has been Adam Keem. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks, everyone. See you later, guys. Bye. Bye.